Hello and welcome to Geeks with Shields, your home for all things good and nerdy in this The Darkest Timeline. I'm Lord Commander Ulrich, and with me as always, his shield brother, Axel Wright. How's it going today, man? Well, you know, it's the I'm going to date us a bit, but it's the first of the month, so, you know, I had to pay rent, and I had to go out and pay on, like, storage, and point is, I'm doing adult stuff today, so not the best feeling, yeah, but giving up all here. Money. No one likes that. Yeah, so let's let's podcast and get uh, you know get into better feeling, feel better. <laughs> all right, well we're going to start this episode the same way we start all our episodes by thanking those wonderful, wonderful people that make this whole crazy endeavor possible. They are our wonderful, wonderful patrons, and they are Pam Galley, Marky, Orion McCann, Chris Chipman, River Galley, Krug, and. And ElmQuest and Reed D. Now, if you'd like to become a patron, just head on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash geeks with shields. It only costs you 25 cents an episode and it goes a long way towards helping us with this podcast. So, joining us today to talk about, you know, comics and their general impact on us is the co host of Geek History Lessons and author of the upcoming book, Super Soldier, Jason Inman. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. Yeah, it's uh, really cool for you to come on, man. No, it's awesome. I uh, I love how this is one of the things I like about social media was the fact that I just put out a tweet saying, hey, anybody looking for podcast guests? And you gentlemen answered with your swords. <laughs> yep. I like well, that. That works. Actually, that raises an interesting question, Ulrich, real quick. So we, we know we both have shields. Do you uh, imagine your, your persona with a sword as well or any other weapon? I always mention yeah. a spear personally. No, I got, I got a sword. All right, we just need someone with an axe then, and we have the trifecta. Chris I have an is... axe in the backpack. I, I definitely brought it. There all you right, go. There we go. <laughs> all right, so today we're going to talk all about comics, which is a topic I think Jason's going to be familiar with. And, you know, just our thoughts on them, the nature of storytelling in comics, how we've got into comics, all that good stuff. So this is very open-ended discussion. I don't know... Uh how much you've you know seen our particular but we're pretty rel- relaxed laid back here so just you know whatever we can put out there have fun <laughs> i mean okay I'll, I'll just start us off real quick i'm not actually that i haven't actually read that many comics uh you know growing up i read quite a bit of spider-man was my main thing because spider-man's like my favorite superhero i feel like it's an obvious answer but it's one of those things where it's like hey it's as big as it is for a reason, you know? So, uh, I mean, I'm the kind of kid, right? When I was really young, I saw like double D on Ed, Ed and Eddie. And I was like, that's identified with me because the super intelligent character and the fact that Peter Parker was this really intelligent character. It was also geeky, but you know, it was the common classic. I identify with kind of thing. So my mom would bring home Spider-Man comics every now and then from the, you know, she worked at like convenience stores and stuff and I'd get you know, a copy every now and then, but I never really followed with it enough consistently to get a good timeline in my head. It wasn't until I hit college that I started reading into stories a lot more, which got me into this weird kind of place where I love comic book stories. I'm, I'm very hit and miss with aesthetics, like very specific authors. I, I require to really get into it. And that's basically my very loose background with comics. There's, you know, a bit more depth. I read a handful of Iron Man and Thor comics, but not enough to consider myself anything approaching an expert on. <laughs> Comics are way too broad, at least my opinion, to ever call myself an expert. And my kind of old story on comics is I grew up in the 90s, which some people call the dark age of comics, maybe rightly so. But because of my uh, geographic location, we didn't get access to a lot of comics. We got them in spits and spurts when we went out of town. My brothers collected lots of comics. So it was lots of, you know, I would get those, read a couple issues, and then never really figure out the ending of the story. So my knowledge of comics, I'd say, is a mile wide and an inch deep. And it wasn't really again until I was older and, you know, college age that I discovered trades and the wonder that those provide in reading and collecting comics. And since then, that has become my go-to for reading comics. And no, I love comic storytelling. I love comic art. I love comics in general. Um, I love comics basically because when you look at comic books, few truly American art creations, it's one of the few things that the United States has actually created and made their own. Um, Now, comic books did exist 
before that there were all kinds of drawings stuff like that but even when you track it back to the old dime store novels that a lot of people read in the old west and then track that up to action comics number one with the creation of the superhero created by two united states creators again it's one of our few mythologies that we have in the united states which is something that we don't have that a lot of other countries in the world have because we're such a young country respectively so it's interesting because I feel like that's why I've always tapped into it because I love the idea of that legacy. And it was one of these issues of that I first read where I saw hundreds of characters at Superman's funeral. And for the first time ever, I realized, oh my God, they're universes like Wonder Woman, Batman, and all these other characters, Robin and Green Lantern are in the same universe as Superman. And that's this giant world, which is something that I think we take for granted now, especially with something like the Marvel Cinematic Universe and, and the Dark Universe and all these giant conglomerates trying to create shared universes. Well, comics are the ones that did it first. And that's sort of what drew me into it. And it's amazing because now since I've started working more in television and stuff like that, in television, it's always constantly the fight of the budget. Do we have enough money to pull off this story? Do we have enough money to pull off this effect? It was types of stories but with unlimited budgets there's no type of budget in a comic book besides basically how good can the artist draw and i think that's the thing that always constantly brings me back to comic books and every time when i think i'm done with comic books it always somehow pulls me back there's always some sort of story or some sort of new nugget that i'm like ah okay i'll go read that do, do you mind if i there, i feel like there's a so a point I want to clarify here, and you could probably fill in the gaps for me here, but I remember a while back, Oric and I were talking about adapting books into television in general. And we were talking about you know, live action versus adapting into animation because you know Castlevania on Netflix was amazing. And we kind of glossed over, we, we made, I feel like we made an implication that it's easier to quote unquote, ignore your budget when you're working animation because everything's just drawn. But as someone who is a fan of a lot of Japanese animation, and uh, I, I know that that's not actually the case, that you know, budget for a production studio and an animation can have a huge impact on the quality of said animation, how well things are actually animated. And, and I feel like going taking that a step farther back into, you know, actual comics or in that case manga but in comics i feel like yeah i mean it comes down to how well the artist can draw certainly but i feel like budget does tie into like what your schedules are what your deadlines are how then how stressed is the artist and the more that's on them the you know more their work's going to suffer so i mean how to what level would you say budget does you know tie into that kind of thing as if you know from what you do know of the kind of comics industry well in terms of comic books if we're going straight to budgets, the idea for comic books, I guess the point that I was going for was more that in a comic book, you could have a scene with 45 superheroes fighting Galactus, who is the size of Jupiter. And that costs nothing, just time and the time to draw it. And yes, the budget does come into the concern of the artist is trying to make a deadline. But if the artist is a professional, then the money budget thing really is hardly it doesn't really have that much to do with it whereas in animation there's a secret with animation that a lot of people don't realize is that every time in animation you set a scene in a new location you just made that show more expensive because that is a new location a new background they have to draw in a lot of cartoons there's a reason why sometimes there aren't that many locations in certain episodes sometimes episodes take place completely in the home base or sometimes the episodes don't ever leave space or sometimes they don't ever leave the bottom of the ocean it's because they don't want to have to draw a new background for every scene and i've also heard a trick from some friends of mine that do work in animation they say that it is actually a thing to stay away from the water as much as possible. Like apparently it is a like unwritten rule in animation to not write scenes near water because uh, water is notoriously expensive in animation and also very difficult to animate. So that isn't one of those things where like that's the difference between the, the two. Whereas again, you can draw hundreds and hundreds of issues of Aquaman underwater and you know, that's really not a budget concern. You know, it's funny. The second you said that, I my brain instantly went to the cartoons I love that take place on beaches, like Steven Universe, which is literally a beach town. <laughs> so yeah, a little impressive now. 
No, I never thought about that whole unwritten law about water, but it makes a lot of sense. And I really love what you just said there about how comics are American mythology. I never thought about that, but it is kind of why I think I fell in love with comics and still love comics. Because if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you know I'm a lore fiend and comics are nothing but that. And it really does kind of combine this whole learning more about characters and their powers and their power sets, as well as often literal godlike figures. Yes, it very especially like when you look at somebody like the DC Universe, that's why a lot of times when you're reading one of the DC characters, especially the, the Justice League characters, sometimes you're reading a run that, you know, is not quite to your taste. It's because I think some people, readers and creators, miss the fact that the DC characters especially are very much kind of Greek gods. They really are, especially if you look at like Batman as Zeus and Wonder Woman as Hera and Batman as, um, as Hades. They're sort of those type of archetypes, whereas like the Marvel characters are more like human characters that ascend to gods through mostly radiation. If you're reading these Stanley 60s comics. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. Well, it's funny. It gives everybody powers, right? That's how radiation works. <laughs> yeah. And, and severe cancer. Yeah. I know it's, I, I feel like it's well known at this point, but that concept of like DC are heroes that you aspire to while Marvel are heroes that you relate to is, you know, based in a, a lot of truth when you look at like how they have constructed their universe. I feel like, you know, I always like to bring up the Mark Twain quote of there's an exception to every like, generalization, including this one, because I like to say that from my experience, Captain America is basically a perfect character. <laughs> it's basically just Superman with just slightly less power, really. So but generally speaking, that seems to hold true for, in, in both the as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you're think, exactly right. Yeah. And we've talked about that's kind of why I do lean more towards Marvel over DC is I just kind of like. Not the grounded nature, because, come on, we've got the Avengers where there's cyborgs and literal gods and soldiers from the 40s running around. But I just kind of like the human nature of it. And that's, again, I think a really, maybe a knock that a lot of comic books get in, and it's changing now, but there's no serious storytelling to be had with comics. And I still remember when Civil War was going on, the comics, and Captain America's death was on the news, and my dad going why is this on TV? And me going, oh my God, they killed Captain America. I need to get back into comics. <laughs> That's funny because it, it's very similar to the story I told earlier, like with the death of Superman, that the only reason I knew about that was because yeah, the local news did a story about it. It made the national news. And I remember, yeah, Captain America did the same thing. It's interesting to see like what comic book characters when they're iconic enough, like if they were ever decide to kill Spider-Man, I think it would make the oh, national news because people would be like, oh, my God, Spider-Man, Peter Parker. What happened to that guy? I'd read that comic. You know, it's funny. I, the whole concept of comics as mythology. Right. I've 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 known that concept for a few years now. Right. The idea that superheroes are my mythology. But to think about the medium of comics and how long they've existed. And I mean, when was Action Comics number one? It was like the, the late 30s. 1938. Right? Yeah, I was thinking 39. So I was I was close in my head. But anyway, point is, that's what 80 years at this point so it's 81. like one yeah yeah so it's existed long enough so that the the medium itself has this certain kind of now admittedly we can say that the medium hasn't started getting and i'm huge quotation marks here because it depends on your definition but you know respect you know since like you know, the, the 80s maybe but still that's like a huge amount of this backlog of this is this continuous thing that's evolved and you can look into the structure of how it's change and it's creation that is itself like a great story. If a mythology is essentially great stories, like morality plays essentially great stories for a purpose of sharing morality or passing on information that is used as like advice, then even comics themselves, regardless of their content function as a mythology, almost, it seems to me when you yeah, read about exactly. Yeah. When you read about like Steve Ditko and what was going on with him when he was making a lot of his like material that that seems to be like that itself is mythology. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And again, it goes back to the thing of like, again, we as Americans, we have we have superheroes and we have cowboys. That's basically all we got. We don't have knights. Those aren't ours. Um, we don't even really have Zorro like Zorro is not ours, but Zorro is also like, you know, sort of a superhero zone stuff. Sherlock Holmes is not ours. Uh, the Greek gods are not ours. 
Um, even when you think about the Odyssey, like that's that's not ours. So like, yeah, we have superheroes. And, and again, that legacy, this idea that this story, that basically they're the same character. They're basically the same characters since 1938. Um, that's the whole reason why, for some reason, even though I hate them, we can't get rid of Superman's underpants on the outside of his costume. You hate Superman's <laughs> underpants. I hate them, dude. And I'll tell you why I hate them. Because Superman is a great litmus test how Americans feel about their country. And I'll give you an example. Um, Superman is a complete social do-gooder. He's a social crusader. He cares about stopping husbands who beat their wives, people who um, slumlords who are raising the rents of the common people. He's concerned with oil barons. He he doesn't fight supervillains. He like helps poor people because he was He's created during the depression. Yeah, well, also, yeah, he starts during the Depression. So, and then soon, like, in the 1950s, when America becomes obsessed with science fiction, he starts fighting aliens every two two days. Um, and then in the 2000s, when we start, you know, we're on a post-9-11 world, and we're like, oh, I don't know who to trust. The government's listening to us. Like, there could be terrorists everywhere. That's when Superman starts becoming, like, this person of self-doubt, where he's like, well, I am strong, but... Maybe I'm not strong enough. And, and so he sort of becomes this lens of how we can look at each other. And the underpants, Superman's underpants come from circus strongmen of the 1920s and 1930s. Now, I'm going to ask you both, gentlemen, when was the last time you went to a circus? 2009. Uh, even earlier than that. <laughs> I was going to say, like, it's been over a decade. Wow. Good. good 2009. Wow. You're like the only person I know in the last 20 years that's been to a circus. But anyways, circuses aren't common. So to me, no. it, it, yeah, exactly. So it's the one thing of Superman that's like desperately holding on to the past where it's like, if Superman were to make his costume today, like right now in 2019, he would never put underpants on it. Actually, he would probably make his costume very similar to like, I would say very similar to what Captain America's costume is in the MCU, where it's sort of tactical and it's sort of body armor-ish. You know, I will say, I will say the whole, the whole underpants, like I totally get from the what Superman represents and time period of thing. I, I feel like there's a couple counter arguments that I think are anyway, here's, here's what I'll say. First of all, just from an aesthetic point of view, I, I like the underpants myself because I've seen many designs of Superman without it. And it looks wrong to me. Although getting into why is very difficult. It has to do basically with color theory and, and stuff like that. Yeah. And that's totally fine. That's, that's perspective entirely. And if you disagree, that's totally cool. That's perfectly fine. I think that it, someone who tries to make the argument more about like Superman literally representing a tie to the past, hence the whole Kansas always seems like it's from the 1930s, no matter what time period Superman's comics takes place in. You could kind of make that, but it's flimsy, but it's saying it exists. There, there is a point there, but I do get what you're saying. Yeah, and exactly. And, and, and there's like no the underpants. I mean, just well, yeah, me. and you know what? They're wrong. Like you can like the underpants. You can not like the underpants. That's the great thing about comic books too. It's like, there's a costume for all of us with Superman. This is true. Well, actually that ties into something I want to, to talk about real quick, which is, so I mentioned I'm really into Japanese stuff. So the most quote unquote comic-y like things, I, I read a lot of manga. Well, not anymore. I used to, but I feel like one of the most important distinctions in how Japan approaches its you know, graphic serialized novels, AKA manga versus how the West approaches its graphic serialized novels with comics has to do with essentially the ownership's not the right word, but a uh, variety, right? Like, you know, any, you pick any famous Japanese manga, you know, like one piece has been going on for 15 years and it's just one guy, one story. But you look at the last 15 years of, you know, Batman, how many different writers have told how many different non connected to each other's stories. So one of the big, I feel, advantages of Western's style to approach this is, hey, with these characters, you know, the, the character itself is larger than any one story. So we give various writers opportunities to tr tell all sorts of different stories. So if you don't like this writer and this artist, you know, try this writer and this artist, or try this writer and this artist, you have these options, right? And so it gives you a lot more ease to find a foothold to like something like superman or batman you don't have to just have the one option does that make sense yes Perfect. and that's also a, yeah that's an advantage that comic books have that something like television doesn't like 
there is no version of Game of Thrones for the person that doesn't like the White Walkers. There's just Game of Thrones. Whereas there are plenty of Batman stories for the fan that doesn't like the Joker. And that's kind of how I first got into comics is I didn't have collections. I just had bits and pieces we picked up when we went to, you know, the Walmart or the Rite Aid or whoever we happened to have the comics. So we get little bits here and little bits there. So I just kind of got little piecemeal bits of the stories here and there. And I don't know, that maybe kind of shaped how I was for the longest time because now my way of doing is I like this character. I'm going to just go pick up a random trade with them on it. And then if I like the story, I'll pick up the next issue. If I didn't like the story, I'll just find another collection with that character in it. Well, that, that also means, and you can take this as a positive or a negative thing, what I'm about to say, and I feel like I can agree with either side, but you, it creates a system where over the course of this 80 years, you know, a, a company that is in charge of, let's just use, you know, Batman as an example, right, is pumping out these different you know one main batman line and they start branching out like okay here are these other batman stories and they can basically see okay readers like like this batman story so we're going to take but they only like this part of it apparently so we can start taking bits of that and wrap it into you know this story and over this long period of time you can basically fine tune and take all these experiments uh, experimental stories and figure out more and more what it becomes like quote unquote core batman as we you know modify and experiment and i feel like that Personally, I feel like that openness to experimentation is a good thing, but you could, I think, make the argument that essentially turning it into this formula where you're fine-tuning and diluting, you know, uh, something is... I'm just saying I could see the argument, but it makes an interesting kind of... um, What's the term? Industry, right? That is the, you know, comics industry. Well, how many, you know, great characters have come up, they were just like a one-off villain or a one-off sidekick, and then the fans are like, no, I want more of those. And they went, oh, okay, well, let's get this character a lot. Well, you know, it's There's a, great a lot of characters like that. I feel like possibly the best example of that is Harley Quinn, who didn't even start in the comics, right? She was just, hey, we're making this cartoon, which is itself then an adaptation, but an experiment that's off of the comics, which were at that time the main thing. And hey, let's make, you know, this character that's a female henchman and holy hell, the fans love her. So let's, you know, pull her out into these comic forms and see, you know, different versions of her that people like. And now we've got like Harley Quinn is one of the most well-known comic book characters now at this point for good or ill, whatever. (laughs) That is that is a great example, because when she first appears in Batman, the animated series, she's unnamed. Get a name until her second episode. And then she doesn't appear in comic books until about eight years later. And the funny thing about that, I mean, now it's almost she's an inseparable Batman character. Like, I think a lot of people struggle with the idea that, no, she was never a character before then. Or, you know, even Winter Soldier, which is kind of cool because I knew of him. I don't know how because my comic book knowledge is very collective, but I knew of him as, you know, Bucky Cap sidekick. And then I knew when he became the Winter Soldier, like, oh, that was Cap sidekick way back when. Oh, that's cool. Well, I love that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, like, I recently, you know, finished Gotham. And because I finished Gotham, I was on this kind of weird Batman kick. Because I was just looking up what various outlets online thought the best. Like, I was looking up lists of adaptations. Because I was like, what are all the various Batman cartoons, television shows, you know, games, movies, stuff? I just I just wanted to see them all in front of me. And I found a few different lists of, like, what are the best adaptations of Batman. And almost all of them listed as the number one, the Arkham series of games, which I've never actually played. Oh, those are solid games. Yeah, they but are I, good. Yeah, but I understand why. Like, I've seen Arkham Asylum and Arkham City played. And so, like, even in Arkham Asylum right there, you look at what characters show up in that and, you know, the versions of those. And there's a reason why... You know, a lot of people will tell you that when they read the comics, and I've seen this online, but will tell you that they hear Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill right in their heads. Yeah. So, my my point being though that like the fact that you can have this, you know, uh, Batman's existed for so long, and that you know a, a lot of people online, I don't know how representative of the Batman audience it is, but agreeing that the best adaptation of it is a video game from like twelve years ago is. It's just real. That's that whole experimental kind of thing. And the fact that that game itself has a character like Harley Quinn in it, who was not in the comics is itself like a testament to that kind of, Hey, let's throw things at the wall and whatever works. We'll just start rolling into core Batman. 
Well, here's something I want to get your guys' opinion on. Why do you think that comics have now so much entered the mainstream? I mean, we have the MCU. Jason, you have a very successful podcast all about comics. What is <laughs> Thank it you. That I'm glad you think it's successful. <laughs> transitioned. You're welcome, by the way. That, you know, this kind of transition because the 90s, for good or bad, really was a bad time for the comic industry. So why is it that all of a sudden they've taken off and become this big thing that everyone accepts. People are going out and buying these comics. I mean, Avengers made a billion dollars in a weekend. We talked about this previously. That is something that I could never imagine growing up reading, you know, the black suit saga going, man, someday this character and these other random side characters are going to be in a billion dollar film and it's going to be awesome and not be terrible. Like so many of these other ones. I feel like it's a little cheating to say this, but I, I feel like the, something like the MCU, if not the MCU itself, was inevitable. But I'm a futurist, so and, and you know my philosophies and that kind of thing are caught. But the point is that these stories, I think, over such a long period of time, there was always like amazing quote unquote mythology in these stories. I mean, one of the things that kept it from being what it is today was things like a general societal what's the word when you look down on something um anyway point in society you know looked down on comics for a long time and there's still you know a portion of society that is but since geek culture basically runs the world now or at least the western world that's a whole nother conversation so it was just when you have enough of these kids who are into this and then they grow up and then they become the people in charge of things and they can then you know control how things move it just was I guess all rivers lead to this eventual eventuality, essentially. If you want to get into details, there's an infinite number of possible explanations. I mean, comics were, there was a point in the, what, in the forties, right? Where like adults reading comics was a regular, was a normal thing. They were still seen as children's things, but there was a reason why soldiers would read like, you know, famously you see pictures of soldiers reading Superman and like Shazam comics. And then, I don't, I don't know. I guess I don't know enough about comic history to say why, like, sometime in the 50s and 60s, it seemed to kind of go out of vogue and then come back. Comics in. code kind of came in and stuck Yeah, it's on because everything. of the comics code. Oh, well, okay. It's it's a, there's a reason for you. Back in, the, back in the 30s and 40s, comics sold millions upon millions. Also partly because they were all dime. And people would spend a dime on a comic book, read it, and then toss it in the trash. That's why there are so few golden age comics, like comics from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. In the 50s, there were a couple comic books that were published, uh, including a, a book that basically lambasted comic books called Seduction of the Innocent and basically talked that comic books were, you know, molding young kids' minds in the wrong way. And Congress went crazy with this. And along with the McCarthy scare, they created the Comics Code and then at that point, like it's in the 50s, that's where comics stopped being for everyone, where everybody started reading comic, stopped reading comic books because there was this huge section of the population that were told like, oh, comic books are evil, comic books are bad. But to me, to the reason why comic books are, or the reason why they are, are perfunctory is, I mean, there's only one answer. It's the movies. That's exactly why. It's also because we have entered this section of pop culture where Disney primarily, but a lot of these billion dollar industries realize that don't want to consume media that is not tied to a previous IP. And what is one of the largest sources of, oh, let's say 80 years of history of intellectual property, <laughs> and that's comic books. That's there are point. more characters in those 80 years of comic books than you could ever dream. And it's one of the few, because again, if you were to put, I don't, I don't know the exact number, but Action Comics Superman's debut has over a thousand issues there. It had it's he's always had like a secondary title or a third title. So if you were to put all the actual issues of Superman together, I mean, it's probably like 10,000 issues, 10,000 stories of characters, plot points, turns that you could literally mine for hundreds of it's the same with the Avengers. It's the same with Iron Man. It's the same with stuff like that. So to Hollywood, that to them is like, oh, Okay, we can we can put Avengers on the top of that movie, billion dollars. We can put Superman on top of that movie. It'll make us a billion dollars. That's the reason why. Because the interesting thing about comic books right now is that the movies are doing huge. Comic books themselves are becoming more and more niche. In February, I think it's the last uh, 
release of comic book sales, month to month comic book sales, the number one selling comic book in the United States, a hundred thousand copies. I think it's like a hundred and ten thousand copies. So the billion dollars that Avengers made worldwide material, only a hundred thousand is a big disconnect there. I think they just need to find a way to loop the comics back into the movie somehow. And you kind of see, you saw that a couple of years ago when you could. <laughs> well, yeah, but I'm talking a couple of years ago, you could see that Marvel was kind of field testing a couple comic characters to see how they will be done in the movies. And I don't know. I got a bookstore here locally that I can buy my comics through. And I think that's kind of the other problem. Comic book shops are kind of drying up for the most part. Like, they're kind of hard to find. Well, comic book shop. Okay, again, my my knowledge of the comic book industry is limited, but from what I can tell, it has a similar problem to the video game industry, where basically it's relying instead of on this wide consumer base, which is what in with comic book versions is that they're relying on the movies for that. The actual comics themselves, they're relying more on smaller and smaller groups of people that spend larger and larger amounts of dollars, as the video game industry calls them, whales. So, like comic book industry then is very insular and kind of exclusive and it's very but that's that's a very challenging kind of topic to wrestle with but it just seems to me that's the case as someone who's you know not fully into it but is still like on the edges and like looking in that i mean how would you say there's some truth to that jason no i think you're i think you're exactly right i think you did nail it it's a very niche market and it kind of just keeps serving the same niche market instead of trying to expand out. Now there are some things that are expanding. Like um, DC is doing this new line called DC Inc and DC zoom that are books that are primarily created for bookstores or libraries that are like specifically targeted at kids between there's a group that's uh, one section of this is targeted from kids from like five to 10 and the other ones for teenagers. And I think that's a good thing because in Barnes and Noble, in bookstores, graphic novels are one of their best-selling sections. So tapping into like that market where there are these young kids under 20 that are hungry for sequential storytelling is a way to expand it. And that is the problem with like comic book stores. And that's the reason why comic book stores are, are, are going downside. Because if you think about that, again, go back to that 100,000 number. 100,000 numbers spread over, you know, 5,000 comic book shops. That's not a lot of comic books for those stores to sell. So it, it makes sense why there are, it, w- it would be the same if, say, if Pepsi this month, we're only making 100,000 diet, diet Pepsis and every store across America could only buy from that 100,000. Wouldn't make a lot of money because, you know, you go down to your local gra- grocery store and they would only have five bottles. Yeah, they dude, would lose their ass. So that was like that, <laughs> if, if five thousand comic shops, even by the, that, that, that means each comic book shop sold 20, 20 issues. Yeah, twenty <laughs> so. issues. And and the other thing about it is too is those comics are priced, you know, anywhere from two ninety nine to three ninety nine to four ninety nine. But not that comic book shop doesn't get all that money. Of course, they have to buy just like retail; they have to buy it wholesale. So they're getting only like a dollar fifty out of that three dollars for twenty issues. <laughs> you know, that's not that's not a lot of profit margin there. So I, I have a question for you. Uh, I've been thinking about so comic book industry, especially with you know Detective Comics, DC and Marvel, th- had their relationship to copyright, I think is interesting and in how basically like Disney specifically has led the fight to ex- extend how copyright law works in order to keep their you know, trademark or copyright on like Mickey Mouse and stuff like that. But so you take a character like Superman who is, you know, 80 years old and by what was quote unquote original copyright law, he should become public domain, what, 30 years ago. So it, and he hasn't. I think it was so, six years ago. Well, by, by original, actually, like, anyway, yeah. Point is, he should have been public domain. He's not because of lawyers and updates to the law and stuff like that. So I'm just curious if we take these big characters, like let's just say for sake of this conversation, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, right? And we make them public domain, you know, today. What kind of effect do you think that would have? I'm curious without trying to like, you know, affect what you're going to say. What what do you think that would do to those comic numbers? I love that you brought this up, man, because this is an argument about comic books that a lot of people forget. I think it would be a renaissance for comic books. 
I'm so glad you said that because I I'm on the side of this should be public domain. But I didn't. I agree, man. And, and the the reason why I brought up six years earlier is because this was I remember, and you might be correct because you know I I don't know copyright law, but I remember mention they made the first time it, it was something like 75 at 75 years was when Superman should have gone into the public domain. But because of corporate Disney trying to protect Mickey Mouse, by the way, I don't who cares about Mickey Mouse? I, I, I don't care. I don't know anybody that does. But anyways, if you love Mickey Mouse, I'm happy for you. But anyways, back to that. Disney's desperately trying to hold on to Mickey Mouse. So these laws get extended to Superman and comic book creator Kurt Busiek who, in my opinion, has written the greatest run on Avengers of all time, and he writes this independent comic book called Astro City, he started spearheading this thing on Twitter when that was going to happen about why Superman should be in the public domain. Wouldn't it be amazing to, if Superman was being in the public domain? I think it would be interesting because I think you would see takes and stories and new characters injected into Superman that we would have never in a million years thought about because Warner Brothers is so desperate to make sure that Superman stories follow the line or, or stay within these boundaries. It would be manga, manga Superman. You would see anime Superman. You'd see black Superman. You'd see Mexican Superman. You would see a Superman who's a robot. You would see Superman as a sort of set in the universe of sense and sensibility. It would, it would be limitless possibilities. And I think it would almost make the character cool again you know well, because that I, was thinking, like, I, I think well so i think as the example like the go-to example for this is sherlock holmes right because sherlock holmes yes. has been domain for what a century at this point and look at all i mean just when uh elementary and and sherlock were out at the same time it was like look we've got two companies have nothing to do with each other both making their oh then you take something like house as well you've got these three shows that are all essentially sherlock holmes shows that approach the material from completely different standpoints and basically depending on what kind of television you're into you're gonna like probably one of them and to have that kind of treatment where you have it, you know, it's basically free for all. Yeah, you'll get some stories that are bad because, you know, fan fiction essentially, but you get more, you open it up to more official stories, more people who are willing to take their, you know, chances on that kind of material and you get that variety. And I feel like that kind of variety is where, you know, you're going to find gold, diamonds, right? The the good stories are going to crop out of there and then they're going to get, you know, talked about and they're going to get to the top and then if it's public domain, you get to adapt those things and yeah anyway i'm i'm very excited no you nailed it man i think you nailed it exactly i because that was an example i was going to bring up too because again all three of those shows you named good shows all good shows all different and 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 sherlock bbc is probably the most interesting because think about how they literally took the original stories of updated them whereas elementary kind of you know they were like oh we we're just going to take the character but we're going to do our own stories whereas sherlock bbc was like let's actually update those stories so like imagine if somebody imagine like let's say jeff lemire who's like one of the i think the best comic book writers out there right now what if jeff lemire decided okay you know what i'm going to adapt the first 10 stories the first 10 issues of action comics the first 10 superman stories ever but i'm going to update them to now with a, a writer like jeff lemire taking those original stories man they could knock everybody's socks off they could give us a new appreciation for the character but yeah i think it would allow so many amazing creative possibilities if superman or and many other comic book characters because by now batman should be in the public domain as well yeah. can you imagine if anybody and everybody if all three of us could make our own batman stories it'd be insanity and also great it might, actually fix, it might, might fix ulrich's opinion on batman <laughs> I am not a fan of Batman because to me, he's become very stale and very rigid and very boring in this is what Batman has to be. And honestly, I'm not a big DC fan, but some of my favorite issues of DC have been Elseworld stories, ones that are just totally one-off, off-the-wall. What's this weird concept we can play around with? And I would love that. I 100% agree because... I think one of the biggest problems that comics kind of fell into is this character has to be this way and can be no other way. And it kind of leads to bland storytelling. Well, a good example of that, I think, is, okay, I'm, I'll defend Superman, generally. I, we live in a time when a lot of our peers like to criticize Superman, like, as a character for a lot of reasons. Now, I generally feel like Superman is done best when you don't treat him like a regular character, because he's not, in my opinion. He's, you know, Superman. He's best treated as, like 
a a catalyst for other things to happen to tell interesting stories around him essentially which is why a lot of superman's stories involved weird out there sci-fi stuff especially in that era that you talked about jason but that being said i am not against playing around with it inherently i just find that it's very difficult to to make good stories with uh, with superman within that framework without making him that but that doesn't mean that you don't get something like you know injustice or the justice lords where it's like let's play around the entire or uh or what was it gods uh gods amongst us where that was the superman was actually the son of zod and landed in mexico it's like yeah you can play around with i am totally for that even with characters that i feel like are done best a certain way it's like you got to be open to that that freedom that to experiment. I mean, I guess that's my overarching thing about Western comics in general is I feel like the more open to experimentation, generally the better it is for the consumers and the artists and everyone involved. <laughs> better for everything. Variety is better for all types of story. It is, I, I because I, I agree with you. Um, I love Superman. Like he is one of my favorite heroes of all. And I, I, and I like Batman, but, I'm with you. I do feel that Batman has become very stale. And and you brought up an, two great examples. Injustice, Injustice is a great Superman Batman story that like bumps both of those characters out of their comfort zones and makes them both interesting. And at the same time, uh, Justice League Gods Among Us, that animated film, yeah, where did Superman's an illegal immigrant? He landed in Mexico, and then you're like, wow, what an amazing twist to that character and and but yet makes it very very current um but that is exactly right it is pushing these characters outside of their boundaries is how you make things great that's how you think things stand the test of time the best example of that i feel is the modern battlestar galactica look at the original show and these ripoff of star wars abc's edict to the executive producer was we need star wars on tv but they didn't have the money to do it and then writer like ron moore took that show and updated it and pushed it out of its boundaries like no this is a metaphor for 9-11 in space yeah and then Battlestar became one of like the most celebrated science fiction shows ever it's it's usually up there if not the best maybe yeah it's it's usually up there like next to trek which is you know on a weird pedestal for other reasons like i talk about but like that's that's good company to be in you know like trek Mm -hmm. and firefly and Battlestar. you see those those three names float around each other a lot so since we're getting near the end of the podcast, I thought something kind of fun would be to do is in your mind, if you had to pick one comic book character that hasn't gotten a movie yet that you think should, it can be an existing character that we already have, but maybe a different version of them. What would yours be? I'm just kind of curious to see what everyone's kind of had percolating in the back of their mind. Question. We've talked about this several times. I want the question. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the well, question would be interesting, but movie or TV series? Because I think TV series question would be incredible. Either way, be a very different kind of takes. Because a movie, I'd want basically L.A. Noir, but with the question, and preferably with uh, if I have, you know, magic, give me a young Jeffrey Combs. I want Jeffrey Combs to play the question. Just that's just me. I'd watch. That. Um, yeah. Whereas with a television series, you'd get something a lot more. I don't know, procedural. Like I, you know, I've said many times that one of my issues with Marvel's Daredevils, I feel like they didn't actually tap into the what's the word the potential of essentially doing something like law and order but with uh, a vigilante who beats people up at night and you know they just tell the serialized story which is fine i love marvel's daredevil but i feel like there's lost opportunity there and so a show version of the question could could do something like that where essentially a um what was that a terriers was the the pi show with donna logue like something like that but with the i would prefer a movie though just because i love the question and i want to see him get a movie <laughs> so the question actually would work really well in the Arrowverse right now. He he could easily, and actually, I think the question will probably show up on. I would bet. I would guess Batwoman. Uh, but for my choice, and they've sort of announced this already, but I really think it should happen is maybe a Booster Gold movie. And the reason for that is because we've now, you know, we're past twenty-two Marvel films. We've we've got so many DC films and other stuff like that. That now I think you have to do as much as you can to make these things unique. And the idea of Booster Gold is that Booster Gold is a time traveler who's out to make himself famous and to use time travel towards personal gain. So I think you could do sort of an Ant-Man tone with Booster Gold by making this hero, this guy who is just a klutz, he's a screw up. And then by the end, the turn of the movie, he has to figure out a way to actually put the timeline back together. I have a quick question about Booster Gold. Do you, 
I mean, I understand the appeal of doing a straight up Booster Gold movie, but I feel like you get away with going right into Booster Gold and Blue Beetle. Or would you just want to save that for a sequel? I think you need to save that for a sequel because with Booster Gold, not only do you have to set up the goofiness, you have to set up the time travelness, and then you have to also set up the idea that he's not really a complete jackass. Like he's actually because there is that tagline that he's the greatest hero you've never heard secretly a really good time traveler and a really good superhero but he has to hide it by being a screw-up if everybody knew that he was like this great time travel hero they would just go back to his past and kill him when he was a baby so i would i would wait on blue beetle till the sequel that's the good thing like you introduced blue beetle in that after credits scene okay i totally buy that i i love booster gold and blue beetle for the record it's basically let's take the superman batman dynamic for anyone who doesn't know booster gold and blue beetle and let's make it essentially a joke and and they're it's like buddy cops but they're both screw ups not the right word but i kind of get what i'm trying i don't what are the words i'm looking for jason <laughs> yeah well I, um i mean i would say that they're i mean this is a terrible reference i would say they're have you ever seen the show simon and simon it sounds familiar a little bit okay all, all the old people know exactly what i'm talking about <laughs> anyway yeah i'm just saying for anyone who doesn't know booster gold and blue beetle like i they're both individually great. Blue Beetle's gone through a few number uh, of characters that are very interesting and weird. But Blue Beetle, I can um, see Blue, Blue Beetle be interesting. Yeah, but the point is that their combined comics, I've read a handful of that, and that's just, it's a good time. They are fun together. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll buck the trend because I know everyone's expecting me to say Moon Knight because I love Moon Knight and Moon Knight is awesome. We need a Moon Knight movie. But I. I'm going to say Thunderbolts. I think we are actually going to see oh, Thunderbolts yeah. in the MCU in the next 10 years. And it will grow great because one, that's a really interesting team dynamic. And what's Marvel's biggest complaint is that they haven't had good superheroes. So what if you could bring back some of the best superheroes and maybe add in a couple, like I'd like to see Taskmaster. Yeah, oh, sorry, so. supervillains. I'd like to see Taskmaster brought in, but I would love that show. Our movie, I think, and... I mean, they're kind of against the clock because we've got Suicide Squad 2 or the reboot, whatever it is, by James Gunn coming out. So that's probably going to be a good one. But if they had gotten ahead, they could have said, yeah, we saw what you tried to do with Suicide Squad, but we're going to do a really good one. And just imagine how much fun that would be with all villains and the stories you can tell with that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we will see Thunderbolts. I'll put 100% that I, I love the original Thunderbolts as well. It'll be interesting to see which version of Thunderbolts they do, whether they do the Thunderbolts where it's forced to be good or whether it's going to be the secret team of bad guys who are out to screw everybody and and pretending to be good yeah i think it's going to be led i'm betting red hulk and i want to say zemo as the leader they're going to do at least those two because those are both kind of already in the mcu and again i just love the idea of a super villain movie where you don't know their loyalty mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Well, and I also mean, that would be like the greatest last scene of a MCU movie in, in a long time. At the last scene, like they all reveal themselves to be the masters of evil. Like we would all oh, be like, "Oh my god!" Oh yeah, that I, would be uh, Thanos reveal level. I'm not saying that uh, he would necessarily fit, but you know that at this point they do the Thunderbolts. They'll find a way to fit Loki in there, if not as the leader, then as like the benefactor or something. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Loki feels Red Skull would be interesting, but he wouldn't fit, but he'd be interesting. I'm just saying that, you know, Tom Hiddleston is, there's a reason why they keep finding an excuse to not have him be dead. So <laughs> yeah, this is true. All right. So we're getting near the end of the show. So we're going to let Jason go ahead and plug his book. Oh, that, thanks. For whatever else you want. <laughs> Very sudden. Um, so I, uh, I wrote a book. That's the, that's why I'm on this podcast. Uh, it's called Super Soldiers. It's called A Salute to the Comic Book Heroes and Villains Who Fought for Their Country. And this is a nonfiction book that's going to be hitting stores on June 18th. It's up for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, Apple Books, basically everywhere you can buy a book. And this is inspired by, uh, I'm an Army veteran. I, I served in Operation Iraqi Freedom. And I noticed for a long, long time that there are a lot of millers in comic books book is me walking through the history of 16 different military superheroes and villains and sort of talking about whether I think they're good service members, whether I think how their time in the military affected their stories and what their time in the military and their stories, like whether it's used to personify them as better characters or worse characters and also like that. And then I compare it with a lot of stories from my personal background. So um, I think it's a really good book. 
Um, and uh, I, I, a lot of other comic book writers do too, like Dan Aykroyd. I, I gave an early copy to Dan Aykroyd, Ghostbuster himself, and he gave me a quote for the book and he enjoyed it. And uh, Brad Meltzer, Mitch Garrett's from Mr. Miracle did as well. So uh, it's for pre-order right now. comes out June 18th. And I'm doing a special right now that if you pre-order the book and you email me the receipt at Jason Inman author, exactly how my name is spelled with author on the end at gmail.com, Jason Inman author at gmail.com. Send me a screenshot of your receipt and I will send you the first three chapters before anybody else. So get to read the first three chapters before anybody else. And I'm going to send you a video that was basically talks about my writing process on the book. So that's a little bit of incentive. Uh, and if you've enjoyed any of my comic book talkings, you enjoy, uh, podcast this book is like in that similar tone it's very funny but yet a lot of information i was already going to pre-order but that's a good initiative right there Wait, and we'll be may, sure to have I, all those links in the description may i ask real quick then so our, our very first episode we did of geeks with shields was a uh we split it into two topics we talked about the last jedi and we talked about the punisher on uh on marvel's the punisher season one on netflix so I'm just curious, since you're an army veteran, uh, without going into anything you might talk about in your book necessarily, because you know spoilers. Can I get a quick, like, while we have you here, like thoughts on on the Punisher in general as, um, as a vet? Thing about the Punisher, and 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 this this isn't major spoilers for my book at all. Even although I do have a Punisher chapter, is that the Punisher is a character that he's a veteran as well. That if he had just gotten some therapy, if he had just talked to someone, to anyone. But instead, he did the thing that a lot of veterans do, keep it inside. It basically boiled up inside him to where he's like this pure volcano that just kills people. And he kills people without... Now, the interesting thing is that he does have a moral code. So he still sort of keeps his code because when he goes out into America, he treats America as it's a combat zone. He sort of follows the rules of engagement. So that part of his brain, that moral part of his brain is still working, but he's doing it for all the wrong reasons. There is an interesting window into our current society because right now, because of the war on terror, we have so many vets out there. There are more vets now than there have ever been in America. And a lot of these gentlemen and women are coming back from overseas with problems very similar to the Punisher. And they are committing suicide, which is a big problem right now. There's a, there's, there's a massive epidemic of veteran suicides. And I'm sorry to bring the podcast down, but it's true. And it's interesting to see because Frank is very similar to those people. And I also think that that's the point where glorifying the Punisher, I think, is the wrong way to look at it because we shouldn't glorify the Punisher. We should literally, he needs help. And, and every kill he makes, every person he goes out, every mobster he runs over with his van is is literally him screaming for somebody to help him that and that, that's basically my take on the punisher no that's exactly i mean not like I, my opinion on the punisher I, the, I don't know but that's the kind of thing i wanted to hear from you like because i'm not a vet and i feel like your kind of input on that specific type of character is very fascinating interesting and i, I look forward to reading the punisher I, 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 thanks man I, I will say this if you're looking for a, the punisher netflix show the first season not the second season. I'm not a second. I'm not a fan of the second season, but the first Same. season does a great job of giving you story about a veteran with PTSD and it has an amazing art. And I, so if you haven't seen it and you're curious about like how to look at the Punisher as a veteran, I think that's a great place to go. No. And uh, feel free to plug your podcast because that's kind of how I discovered you and knew that I wanted you on this uh, show. Oh, cool. Uh, well, I, yeah, I also do a, a weekly podcast with my co-host, Ashley Victoria Robinson. It's called Geek History Lesson. It's exactly what it sounds like. We take one character, construct, or team from pop culture, and we break them down in about an hour. We have discussions about them. We teach you about them. And basically, it's a way to learn about this massive mythology of comic books. We, we also do some video game characters, also some characters from fiction as well. But it's a way to embrace our love of pop culture, but also teach people about that. And it's a weekly podcast. Again, you can find on iTunes and Spotify, everywhere where you find podcasts. Yeah, no, I've been a huge fan of it and I've used it Thanks, to really kind of fill in some of the gaps in my knowledge. And I got to say that Dr. Doom episode had me in stitches. <laughs> well, thank you. That was our 250th episode. And and uh, yeah, we I've been teasing that I had a Dr. Doom impression for a long time because I have. <laughs> and then it's funny that over the course of the episode, it changed. <laughs> no, that but, was hilarious. Uh, th thank you. I'm glad you I'm a big fan of the Fantastic Four because I think it's Marvel Universe's Star Trek, which is yeah, why it always frustrates that. me that 
Yeah, well, it's the reason why it frustrates me why they haven't been able to pull off a movie because I'm like, look at Star Trek. Just make superheroes with Star Trek. That's the Fantastic Four. <laughs> yeah, basically. And also, um, Doctor Doom, man, deserves better than the treatment he's gotten in movie form. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's my big hope that he's maybe the next major villain of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and that they oh, spend some time building him up. I would love it. Doctor Doom is hands down my favorite comic book character, and I oh. want a good Doctor Doom is arguably I, I, okay. Personally, I wouldn't say he's like the greatest villain to come out of comic books. But he is the greatest comic. Yeah. But he is the great. He, he, he listen to my, my wording. He's the greatest comic book villain. That's a, that's a different. You get get what I mean? Because like like I look at someone like Magneto and Joker, and those are characters that I feel like go well beyond like the medium of comics but dr doom i feel like is such the perfect and i use that word specifically i know I'm on purpose the perfect incarnation of what a comic book villain is does that does that make sense no, you're exactly right you're exactly right i was just throwing out the um as as people that have listened to the geekish lesson on doom uh i discovered that doom says bah a lot and probably <laughs> way too much than human ever should it, it was perfect all right, so let's move on to our suggestions of the week. And I'll go ahead and get us started. Um, as we've said, I'm a lore fiend. And I, you know, I get into something, I want to know everything about it. And one of the things I love is Lord of the Rings. But I hit a wall trying to learn the history and the mythology of Lord of the Rings. Because it's essentially world history. And I've tried the Silmarillion. I can't pronounce it. The big book that he wrote. I couldn't do it. And then I discovered a YouTube channel called Men of the West, which breaks it down much like a geek history lesson in little individual pieces, like it's an actual history lesson. Like, okay, this is the story of the first age and these characters. This is, they had a great episode, you know, detailing the long story of history between the dwarves and the elves and why they didn't get along. And it makes it digestible. And I can go, okay, I can finally understand all these funny names and made up languages. And I don't, it's just, a great YouTube channel that deserves way more views than he's getting. Awesome. I, I haven't heard of it, but I know that the the Silmarillion is, is. definitely a, a dense read. <laughs> so my suggestion for the week, I'm going to keep this quick and simple, is Scott Pilgrim, but the graphic novel. for I, I know that it got kind of popular after the movie came out. I love the movie. Me and Ulrich have had fights about this because it's not really his bad cup of tea. I love it. But I also own all six volumes of the graphic novel, which is somewhere between a manga and a comic and like a newspaper comic strip. I don't even know what, how to describe it really. But if you, for some reason, maybe saw the movie, but didn't check out the graphic novel, or you just like the idea of some fun, ridiculous kind of comic adjacent story that, you know, makes a lot of pot shots at pop references, but also tells a pretty compelling story about what it means to be a burgeoning young adult in our modern society, especially if you live in Canada, but then, you know, check out the six volumes of Scott Pilgrim. It's good stuff. And the ending's different than the movie. If that matters. Uh, my pick for the week is a comic. I literally read a couple hours before I got on this podcast and that is deceased. Uh, it's a little, it's DC and then East like deceased. Uh, it's by DC comics written by Tom Taylor and it's a comic that came out this week. It's basically DC Comics zombies kind of taking off the Marvel zombies thing where uh, a person in the DC universe basically becomes a bloodthirsty zombie and starts killing everyone in the DC universe. Now, I'm not a big zombie fan, but I am a big DC Comics fan. And the characters that go down and how they go down and how this virus is created makes this a fun, very interesting book. And again, just like Injustice, and this is written by the guy who wrote the Injustice comic book, so that's why you know it's good. It's a way to show the DC universe in a different light and an exciting light and kind of kick DC Comics' ass a little bit, shake up the universe, because you will not believe, and I will not spoil it here, the last page and who goes down on the last page. But there's a big death, and it really, really surprised me. So if you're looking for some crazy comic book insanity, or a comic book acid trip, then I would say check out Deceased, number one, by Tom Taylor. Would you tie that to Blackest Night? Because that reminds me a lot of Blackest Night from what you're saying. <laughs> uh, a little bit, but it's it's not as... Well, it's not in continuity. That's the number one thing. But the uh, the other thing is, so... adventure. it literally is zombies are going to eat the DC universe. <laughs> but they're not emotion-sucking zombies. They're literally flesh-eating zombies. Uh, okay. I just, I just always love the idea of the whole, like, blackest night explanation of quote-unquote mm. i did i did stuff. love blackest night i do think it's one of the better dc events but this is a different turn this is I, all i will say is that this virus comes from dark side 
Ah. All right. Well, we'd like to thank Jason for coming on the podcast. Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me on. It was an absolute pleasure. And I hope that my ramblings about comic books were interesting, at least. I was interested. And hopefully Same. we can get you back on sometime. I would love to. It was a pleasure. All right. Thank you, man. I mean, I had a good time. I, I love anyone who will take the time to like kind of debate with me the nuances of uh, – of industry and history and especially like weird, very, even among geek culture, niche conversation about like how mythology and comics behave. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. Be sure to like, share, subscribe, do all the things because literally you got to do it or no one's going to see this. And I'm contractually obligated to talk about SoundCloud. So if you're listening to this on YouTube, thank you but also we're on SoundCloud and we're looking into a few other things right now. Uh, Libsyn and Podbean are two of the ones we're considering. I'm, I'm leaning towards Podbean personally, but you know, conversation to happen. But if there's any other platform that you want us to be on, that'd be easier for you, then let us know what it is and we'll look into it. As always, this has been Lord Commander Ulrich. And his shield brother, Axel Wright. Be sure to tune in next time. And as always, stay honorable.